Hello and welcome back to the Research VR podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Oz Balabanian, and with me today is our new guest, Asad J. Malik from the One Rick Company. And uh, he is a filmmaker working on a really interesting augmented reality film. And uh, hi, hi, hi there, Asad. Hi, hi. Thank you for having me. Of course. And, uh, and with us today is the wonderful Mr. Peter Lekoff from Germany. Well, hello, hello, hello. So, Assad, you are probably one of the only people in the field doing the thing that you're doing, or at least there's there's a very rare breed of people that are working on augmented reality, if and if not the actual filmmaking aspect of uh, using AR headsets and volumetric video. So, before we jump into all of that, the details and the technical stuff, um, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of of who you are, what your background is, and um, how you found yourself in this position. Okay, that sounds like a plan. Yeah, it's kind of interesting being introduced as a filmmaker. I did not think around six months ago that that would be possible anytime soon, but I suppose that's what's happening now. A brief like background on me is basically, I am from Pakistan, that's where I was born and raised. I went to high school in the Netherlands, and now I'm going to college in the US. And my work has been focused on technology for a long time now. I made my first website in my early teenage years. And since then, it's just been kind of a fascination with uh, what is capable, but also, you know, thinking about what new possibilities that technology enables people to be able to do but also being very critical of how uh, the Silicon Valley kind of culture influences growth of new, new technologies. And augmented reality is kind of, I got into it around probably on a year and a half to two years ago was when I first started getting into it, which sounds incredibly recent. And in this uh, time, I was just exploring what are the possibilities of things that can be done with headset-based AR. I I was differentiating uh, between mobile AR and headset-based AR, and I was convinced that the only thing I want to work with is headset-based headset AR, because that's ah. true augmented reality. And the whole idea is to give up on looking at your world through a tiny, um, flat rectangle. But that has changed slightly, I think, at this point, and I'm sure we can get into that later. But in terms of yeah, what I was saying earlier, being introduced as a filmmaker, this really just came about a few months ago when I published a project called Holograms from Syria. And the idea behind the project was coming out of a lot of personal experiences I had had growing up in Pakistan, um, visiting Libya during the war, then kind of living in this liberal arts college in Vermont where I go to school right now, and just comparing and contrasting the lives in all these places. and starting to realize how I'm working in this world of simulations. And when we talk about simulations, we think of, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality simulations, but the word simulation in like philosophy or critical theory is actually like, has been explored a lot for uh, centuries at this point. You know, there, there is a whole breed of French critical theorists talking about simulation as capitalism being a simulation or the a lot of social structures, the way we dress, fashion, money, uh, all of these in different regards can be looked at as simulations. So one of the things I was doing at that time, I was looking at war as a system of simulation. 
And uh, that's kind of what Holograms from Syria came out of. Um, could you also say that the Plato cave is somehow like one of the original understandings of a simulation? Absolutely. I think uh, simulation, actually, if we're going down that rabbit hole, then the whole idea of the simulacra is a very platonic idea. A simulacra is a bad copy of something in Plato's definition. It's like, uh, you know, there is a chair, there is a physical chair. It's a copy of the idea of what a chair would be. And then you can make a bad copy of the chair and it becomes what he calls a simulacra. And there's a lot of discussion and debate about what it means for something to be a simulacra. And what I like to do with my work is to say that simulacra, which is in theory a bad copy of something, is actually a thing on its own. It has value of its own. And this to get into a lot of like worlds that people build in virtual reality and how those worlds can be real worlds, um, although they're virtual. Yeah, there, there's actually so many different directions we can go with this <laughs> in terms of the uh, clearly you, you've you've deep you've thought deeply in terms of the the underlyings uh, the uh, philosophy when it comes to how do you you know how do you approach this technology and how do you integrate it and I mean that's something that we're really excited about and and us as like cognitive scientists like we thrive off of those conversations so I guess if you want to go a little bit deeper into simulations and whatnot um what do you I mean how do you differentiate the factor between what uh, between simulate simulation and simulacra if you are trying to make a distinction between like what is a uh, is the distinction to, to determine what is a real simulation and one what is a simulation that's trying too hard, or how do you see that? Uh, there is a particular essay that was written by Jean Baudrillard, a French critical theorist, and the essay is "Simulations and Simulacra," I believe that's the exact title. And the movie "The Matrix" was actually inspired by that essay. Uh, a lot of the ideas were taken out of it. And in that essay is this very interesting example that I find myself quoting rather frequently. Baudrillard talks about Disneyland and he says, well, Disneyland is a very obvious simulation. It's supposed to be this world in which certain things are real, which in the outside world are not considered real. So when you enter the walls of Disneyland, princesses and pirates become real. And in that kind of fictitious world, you have different beliefs of what if it means for something to be virtual or real. What he does is that then he says, however, Disneyland placed inside LA. And the only reason it's marketed as a simulation is to make you feel that LA is in fact not a simulation, to make you feel that LA is real. However, LA itself is also a simulation, a simulation with, you know, fake facades and movie stars and Hollywood sets and you know, commercialism to this extent that everything is has to be marketed. And for him, all that is a massive system of simulation. And Disneyland is only a tiny part inside it to make you feel like Disneyland is the simulation and LA itself is actually real. And something fun I like to do with this experiment is to kind of like imagine a world in which Disneyland just starts becoming bigger and bigger because people go and start living there and they're like, wow, Disneyland's great. We just want to stay here. We want this to be our dominant reality. And when you start doing that, Disneyland starts becoming that it takes over all of LA. And at some point, princesses are real because Disneyland is 
bigger. It, it is the dominant reality. It has taken over all of LA. And people go to LA from time to time and treat it like a theme park. Just go there, you know, down Colorado Boulevard just to experience the simulation of Los Angeles. So basically where you're going right now with your thoughts is so basically culture, right? So I was gonna culture say, itself. Yeah, I was gonna say actually like this this is eerily similar to like going to a country that has its own set of mythology and its own set of, you know, princes and princesses and subscribing to that and being like, this yeah. is not a bad place, right? Like, can't you make that assumption that like the Disneyland that we call a simulation can also be applied to a particular nation and its mythology and, and its political yeah, system? Yeah, foreign country. Like you go to a foreign country, you kind of in the beginning start to feel like you're in Disneyland because everyone is behaving strange and it, it seems to be some rules. I mean, Disneyland is obviously lighter and easier to grasp, but uh, foreign culture is also, I guess, in a certain way, very, well, not particularly real feeling like, right? So it feels like a miracle or, <laughs> I don't before the Before we started recording, when I said we can go off on tangents, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't expect to go down talking about Disneyland. Um, let's, <laughs> let's reel it a little bit back in terms of, um, now that, I mean, you, you clearly this is something that you, I don't worry about or in terms of like the, the places that people want to be in, but the, the topics that you're trying to tackle, right. Uh, whether it was your first piece that you worked on with holograms from Syria or whether it's your new film, I mean, th those are all about the real life and it's about really real still situ real situations that people are dealing with. Um, I mean, how do you see that fitting into this spectrum of, uh, content and simulations? So, I mean, the idea with my work was to kind of bring up the simulations in our lives and, you know, almost use uh, these technologies of simulation like virtual reality, augmented reality, or augmented reality, particularly in my case, to bring back focus to certain aspects of reality that are easily ignored. So, for example, uh, the whole idea of holograms from Syria, in which I can describe for the listeners what exactly happens is that. Um, I took images from the war in Syria and placed them in different locations in the U.S. And that was the extent of the work. That was it. That was the project. A lot of people since have heard about it and uh, it's received some press and people talk to me about it. People have invited it over for gallery settings or festivals. And I've always said no, because that's not the right context. Um, the most important thing about the project is what the context is. And this is definitely something I would like to get into later, maybe in a later part of the interview, uh, about talking a bit about context and how that changes in virtual reality and augmented reality when you're thinking about developing content. But what this project did was that it just juxtaposed and uh, what you were seeing on the through the HoloLens, which was an image of someone experiencing war firsthand, but in your space, in your space, which is directly connected to the war. And this is quite a literal manifestation of that. It's like you see a dead child on your living room sofa and all it says is that this living room sofa and the money you paid for it is directly connected to the war. And your surrounding and your life is directly con uh, connected to the war as well because you're part of a system that is waging this war in another part of the world. So could you say that you're kind of breaking uh, the force wall in a way that Because people tend to, um, you know, perceive distance as something that separates them from a certain happening. So let's say when a similar situation, like in Syria right now, 
would happen in my neighborhood, I would be very way more worried than compared to it happening, you know, very far away. And you're kind of breaking this, yeah, basically illusion of distance and that things are somehow separated by basically putting it directly in my living room. Yeah, for sure. And that's like, I think, in link with what we were talking about earlier in terms of other cultures and places being simulations because they're far away from you and you don't understand them and you don't understand how things are done there. So you have such a level of abstraction and removal from them that it becomes easy to not empathize. You're talking about context is key, and I think we can return to that. I think it's a really fascinating subject to dive a little into because augmented reality is all about not you know removing your peripheral vision. It's, it's about putting content into your space, and you're taking full advantage of, of that to pair things that are contrasting, right? Like you don't think of your couch as being a, a place for like a child, like a, a war-torn child to be on. But I mean, I heard you mention the connection that that people have between this couch and the war. Um, can you expand a little bit about that in terms of like what's guiding your your thinking of 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 tying a couch to a, a war? I mean, in the most literal sense, it's thinking about war relation, uh, assimilation, as in you know, for example, how stocks work and how money works. There is this particular moment actually that kind of started my train of thinking for this project when donald trump fired around i think 47 is the number uh missiles over syria at the start of his presidency and each one of those missiles was around 1.2 million dollars and the next day the stock of the company that was making them went up over a billion dollars and that is exactly what i mean by the economical and obviously sociopolitical connection between what's happening there and what's happening here. And by your couch being connected to it, that's kind of what I refer to as in um, this incredibly connected, economically, financially incredibly connected times that we live in when every purchase made in one place actually has very tangible effects in other parts of the world. And a lot of it stemmed out of my fascination with the fact that this was a country at war. The US at this moment is a country at war because there are soldiers out there placed in other parts of the world who are like engaging in you know direct conflict. So and how Balti is almost never part of a, a normal life while you're actually living inside this country. But it's very noticeable in the other countries which are also engaged in the same war. So this was yeah, kind so of... Well, yeah, the world definitely shifted to proxy wars and to, in a way, the Cold War, the proxy wars, is basically, you. it's very unpopular when your own soldiers are dying or, you know, your own people. So you kind of try to engage in combat and you see it from Russia, you see it from the US, you see it from different countries that somehow those local proxy wars somewhere far away are definitely not completely uh, on their own, but are supported from different sides and that shapes away the perception of um, basically people living in one country away from what the government that they are basically electing is doing. So um, I would propose maybe that we switch for a moment um, to a more technical description of how you filmed and how you actually captured your footage and um, then maybe in the end elaborate more on the, um, let's say, um, socio-philosophical part of it. 
Okay, that sounds good. So I think what would be helpful is I can kind of uh, start to talk a bit about what my thinking is with this with this nature work in terms of you know my artistic approach, and then I can start talking potentially about Terminal Three, which is my uh, the new project that I'm working on that will be premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival, um, and I can talk about some of the capture technologies and methodologies that we're using technically to uh-huh. make that work possible. So just going back to this idea that we were starting to talk about, the idea of context, um, the reason I with augmented reality and particularly nonfiction storytelling with augmented reality is because I'm trying to understand and work with the the viewer's context. The big difference between, or the important like conceptual distinction between virtual reality and augmented reality in my head is the fact that virtual reality assumes no context. It starts off by removing you from your space, while augmented reality is all about the space you're in. Once you're augmenting that space with additional content, that content has a life of its own, but it also has a life in that particular space. And us as creators have to be absolutely conscious about what the content is that we're making and what space is it being showed in and what relationship it has with that space. So with uh, holograms from Syria, although technically it was the most simple project ever because it was literally flat images displayed in space, the context was what was doing the work. However, with my upcoming project, Terminal 3, um, this is, it starts to get a bit more elaborate. This is the project that we raised money on Kickstarter for under the title Assad and Assad. At this point, there are kind of multiple versions of the project that are going out in different ways. There's going to be a version being displayed in Germany in a museum uh, in the contemporary art in Freiburg for the next six months under the title Assad and Assad, which is kind of the work in progress uh, that we made leading up to Terminal 3. And the completed version, Terminal 3, would be premiering at Tribeca. Um, The idea behind Terminal 3 is where you keep in mind those ideas of context that we were discussing earlier, but also start to tell a story now. And in the story, have the viewer actually engage with the context rather intimately. So, for example, what happens in Terminal 3 is that you go to the installation, you put on uh, a HoloLens, which is still the main headset that we're working with, And you walk into the room, which is designed to look like an interrogation room. You see a CCTV camera, a stool in front of you. You sit behind a a table. And then soon you realize that you're actually the interrogator at an airport now. And through the door are going to come people who are being secondary screened. And you'll be able to interrogate them. Um, There is a voice in the walkie-talkie that kind of guides you and tells you that, okay, the next person's coming in. And then a hologram walks in from the physical door and sits in front of you on the physical stool. And this hologram kind of looks blue and glitchy, and you can start to actually engage with this hologram using your own voice. Uh, you can pose questions like, um, can, can I see your passport? And then you start getting multiple options in terms of the type of questions you can be asking. You get two questions on your screen, and uh, you ask them by actually saying them out loud. And these questions can, they're kind of dehumanizing, like, do you have any association with the Taliban or, you know, incredibly skeptical and critical of this person? Or they can be more kind of empathetical or humanist and 
you could ask about their family or their love life or um, things of more personal, intimate things of that nature. And hopefully over the next like 12 minutes while you're having an exchange with the hologram, you start to get to know them. And at the end, you're kind of expected to make a decision to whether or not this person should be let, let into the country. And that's kind of the more storytelling-based project that I'm working on going forward. Could I ask one question short? So we had in the beginning um, the topic Lacra or the simulation. So would you say that when we perceive an immigrant as someone who is basically evil, who just wants to come to our country and do something evil, It's more like a simulacra of a person, but when you start to actually know him better, you start to see that it's actually a real person. It's not a simulacra or a simulation, but actually something true. Is this a thought that is valid? Or? Yeah, I think it's a valid way to think about it. It's almost like you meet an abstraction of a person. Like this is, this is something that is reflected and not only, you know, people who meet other people from other parts of the world that they are not familiar with and have only, don't only have preconceived notions about them through the media. But for example, when a politician sits and makes a policy decision, it affects real people, but it's made on the idea of some abstraction of those people. It's what you have in your mind while you're making that decision is not one real human being. It's kind of this abstracted group of numbers almost. And similar idea with fake news and online kind of trolling, because you never have the essence of that real person or their presence that you can feel. It's always this abstracted notion of a human being on the other side. Yeah. And that makes and these kind of things. So I see. And you achieve this presence through capturing basically a three-dimensional structured um, surface of the people with a Kinect and a DSLR, right? Yeah. So uh, in terms of what the hologram looks like, yeah, we're working with a depth kit that I'm sure you guys are familiar with. It's a company out of Brooklyn and what they're doing is that uh, they're allowing for some volumetric capture using just a connect that captures the depth and we synchronize it with the DSLR that captures kind of blur data and that becomes the texture for the depth and we use that to make the holograms which are then further uh, abstracted in unity and we're kind of going with this blue glitchy cyberpunk vibe and the more you talk to the hologram the more you get to know them the more realistic they start to appear as well. Oh. Yeah. It's a really interesting effect, actually. I can see, like, it's almost like the, uh, the it's a visual representation of that simulacra of the person, the archetype uh, of the person kind of going away into, and forming into a real person, right, that you can associate with. Absolutely. Earlier, you kind of were talking about how with AR, context is everything and, and you cannot, that's something hard to control, right? Like you don't know where the people are going to put on their headsets and try unless you do an installation. But um, you mentioned that you didn't want the, uh, the, your previous work to actually be, be at these film festivals. And I guess, how do you, how do you deal with that now that the, you know, this project is, isn't like you said in Tribeca and I mean, are you trying to control the environment, which within they can experience it because that's as, that's as best as you can do with AR or how do you, how do you approach this? I think with a work of this nature, that is highly based on context, right? Like for example, a moment in holograms from Syria would be when an image of, let's say someone holding a dead body is shown on a beach in Hawaii, you know, 
the fact that that image is shown in Hawaii is the juxtaposition. So taking that image into a neutral space, which would be a white-walled kind of museum or um, a festival, I think takes away that idea of context. It's not meant to be displayed in that space. That's why I was not interested in having holograms from Syrian museums and festivals. Um, although, of course, I think this is an interesting conversation to have that at the same time, these so-called neutral spaces with white walls also do have a lot of context. And of course, that's one conversation to go down on. But I think that for this project, what I started working was that if we're going to be displaying it in these kind of cultural institutes, then there should be a level of institutional context that be incorporated in the project. So now it's kind of this small interrogation room with white walls, very sterile, very neutral in which you get to interrogate the, this person. And you still associate yourself with that space because you're physically in it. And you know exactly how you got there physically, how you're meeting this hologram. But because we kind of use that like almost neutral idea of the space to our advantage. And then, of course, we control the space as well by building the installation, by having props and things of that nature over there. But for example, now I'm thinking about this project, like if I make a VR version of it, how hard would that be? And that would be relatively not, that wouldn't actually be that hard because the context, even in the AR world, is actually neutral enough that virtual reality is inherently neutral or starting off virtual reality is supposed to be neutral. So by building like a small, clean, white room in VR that you can then meet this hologram in, Although that's still more abstracted than actually seeing them interact with your physical space, it's it's reasonable. But I think what's harder is to make a mobile version, um, something I absolutely intend to do. But for example, when you have a hologram placed on your chair in your room, it's not exactly the same context where you can interrogate them. So I'm starting to think more about what is possible. And for this project, actually, I think that would be possible and that wouldn't be the biggest problem. But I'm just saying that one of the things that I think people should be really considering and thinking about uh, while designing immersive experiences is the context. Because, of course, you cannot control the context every time, by but by thinking about it, you can affect it. You can have the viewer look at their space differently than they did before. I don't know how much you guys have you know, spent time with the HoloLens or something, but like there is this very clear lingering effect when you put a hologram of something in a space. And even after you've taken off the headset and you're walking around that space the next day, you can feel yeah. that, that presence. You don't need to see it right. to feel that presence. Especially, especially if you experience that with someone else and you both experience the layers of holograms that you have in a space and, and, and you know, with the, with websites up and videos that you watch together, I've had those I've had those conversations as well with people who are like, remember when we were looking at this in AR and like there was a tiger on my bed? Um, I think you're you're totally on it in terms of that aspect. And but it's an interesting point that you make in terms of a VR port to this and then even a mobile AR port. Um, how do you how do you see yourself working with the other mediums? Um, do you do you make a huge distinction between mobile AR and headset AR? And uh, do you, I mean, do you think it's a viable solution for at least the time being or how how does the landscape look to like to you i think i'm coming around to it i think that in the ideal world everyone would just have headsets right now and things would be nice because screens would be gone and 
everyone would use their yeah. whole body to engage with content like the bodies are meant to be doing. But since that's not happening, unfortunately, anytime soon, I don't expect it to be, you know, common enough to make content and have like even mildly reasonable distribution for the next like five, six years. Um, I think it's a, a mobile AR is certainly like a, a way to do it. And I, I've really opened up to it a lot over the last few months. Um, I've seen some cool things happening with it, you know, like it, it has more uh, capacity in many regards than the HoloLens has in terms of the people it can reach, of course, but then geolocation and even in terms of just pure graphical quality of things you can display with it. I think there are advantages to it. And the most important thing, once again, is for people to really sit down and consider the advantages and disadvantages and the the conceptual place that each of these technologies or devices takes in the space and think of whatever experience they're building for it from the ground up. So when I'm thinking of uh, making an AR, mobile AR version, I would be thinking, okay, well, I don't have complicated spatial tracking or understanding anymore like I do with the HoloLens. And th this person is not hands-free anymore. They cannot yeah. see as much of the hologram anymore, although, of course, the hologram has a, uh, sorry, the HoloLens has a tiny field of view that everyone jokes about. Uh, but yeah. still, with the phone, you're less immersed. It's You're looking through a window. The whole idea of AR is that you're, in, you're supposed to be in the window. But at the same time, simply because it can reach more people and you can do all these things with geolocation, it starts to become a lot more interesting. So, for example, uh, going forward, I have all intentions to do work with mobile AR. But I would want to do thing work that's even more contextual because I have this geolocation-based information. So, um, for example, if I could sit here and disperse around holograms of people, like if I could make holograms and displace them, this is one of the major concepts I work with in my work. I, I call it cultural augmentation. And the idea of cultural augmentation is that you can take someone who culturally or ideologically belongs in one part of the world, but then put them somewhere else. For example, imagine having an app on your phone that gives you a notification and says, okay, a hologram found near you. You're like, oh, wow, where is the hologram? You found the location on the map and you walk towards it. You get there and other people have found it too. And now you're in a conservative street in Pakistan and here is this hologram of an atheist talking about you know, being outspokenly against religion. And this is something you've not confronted in your real life. And this like hologram has presence in your space and you engage it with it with your, using your own voice. And there are other real people around you. And suddenly it becomes this whole controversial conversation that you wouldn't be able to have otherwise. And similarly, this is ever, ex you can expand it like infinitely. You can have a hologram of a homeless person in the Uber CEO's office. You can have a hologram of a refugee in a White House. You can have the hologram of a neo-Nazi in a liberal arts college, you know? Like these kind of cultural, tension-based moments that wouldn't be possible otherwise. And it, it, digital technology or, you know, fake news and everything is in general distancing you from. Um, I would find yes. mobile AR very interesting to be able to do that. And what I think personally um, is so fascinating about your art and what you're doing is that um, technologically speaking, I mean, capturing a hologram and displaying it, other people or other companies have done it too. But what I find so fascinating is how much thought you put into the philosophy basically behind your art. And I think this is a very good 
example to actually underline that it's not just about rendering a beautiful object or it's not just about the pixels or about the field of view. It's not always, or actually it's very seldomly about the specs, but it's more about the deep thoughts and also the deep philosophical web uh, behind the art or the entertainment or whatever you're actually doing with VR, AR or any other medium. It's not so much the medium, but um, so much as the artist is being capable of doing with it. And your example is definitely showing that um, basically, you know, very simple things like a hologram of a person can be very touching and can change the way people see reality. And it's, I think it's, it's actually very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely appreciate the approach as well uh, from a much more content perspective rather than... Um, you know, trying to do a tech demo, um, in terms of inspirations that you can kind of pull from, uh, and I'd say to restrict it within the, this immersive technology realm, like, are there, are there pieces of, of work that you would point to, to say that, you know, these were things that you really liked and you were inspired by and you wanted to build conceptually on top of? Yeah. I, I think that this is where the whole filmmaker conversation comes in, right? Because I was just, um, I was just in the tech space mostly, or at least that's how I thought of it. I was someone just sitting and exploring what can AR do. And I have no background in filmmaking or uh, content directly, but it was mostly about like, what is content that can be created with this technology that no other technology has ever been able to produce. And that's kind of what introduced me and led me to this film or entertainment space that's mostly LA-based content studios and communities that are working with VR and AR. And I was surprised to find that there was actually a lot of very interesting work happening there. And a lot of people who are actually very dedicated and focused on the uh, content side of things, usually the technology side of things suffered because of that. Most most of this good content was coming out in the form of 360 videos. But that has been changing a lot over the last, like uh, Sundance this year, for example, there was incredible like amount of, um, real-time unity-based kind of virtual reality work. I mean, um, I think, for example, like you were talking about this in the past, like this idea of storytelling and filmmaking and virtual reality. A great example of a studio that I think is thinking about it in a very like interesting way is Fable. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Fable, or if you're not, I think they, I think they stemmed out of the Oculus Story Studio. Um, and they have a project currently called Wolves in the Walls that was premiering at Sundance this year. And it's kind of this virtual reality experience in which uh, you're in the space and um, you meet this character. I believe her name is Lucy, who introduces you to the space and kind of walks around and responds to you and talks to you as if you're a part of the experience. And there is a whole storyline going with it. But what I find most fascinating about the approach is that they're really starting to think how a character can live with you almost like how a character can engage with your space and be there present with you, like throughout can sit down and watch a movie with you, you know, like it's not about creating stories that fit into these, um, you know, an hour, two hour long flat like versions and virtual reality doesn't have to do that either. It doesn't have to have these like linear straightforward narratives. Um, but it can like be a completely new medium of storytelling. It can have a completely different approach from how things have been done in the past. And I think that that aspect is very fascinating um, to me. 
That's that's really fascinating that you point um, Fable out, and, and in terms of like trying to contextualize a character into your space, and, and and have that be a more have that be a big part of the storytelling. Um, just this morning, I I read um, a Facebook post from Edward Saatchi, uh, who he was one of I think the founders of the Oculus Story Studios, um, and there was an interview on him or with him found and get and gadget talking about how, what he thinks about the filmmaking in the space right now. Um, and he's, he talks about some of how he's moved past, uh, thinking of, of trying to make a two hour VR movie, but thinking more in terms of like what he calls, uh, it, it's going to look more like blade blade runner, 2049, a persistent live in AR VR interactive character that lives in the home. Um, and so I, I first kind of thought about that and I didn't see the appeal of it. Like, I don't think I don't, you know, I don't want to have a um, Han Solo or something in my house, but perhaps, I mean, hearing you talk about this more, I think I'm reconsidering what sort of artistic capabilities you can have by having not only because with AR headsets, you'll, you will really understand the context of the room and the house and all the elements in it, right? Like we, we're going to see that be applied in a, in a very near future. Um, and what you can do with that, I think is really open and completely unexplored. Cause we, I mean, we haven't had the capabilities yet. Um, do you think, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on his, and his view of, of where he thinks things are going to go? I think it's great. And I think it's like in, in the space where, um, a lot of thinking is almost bored from how things are done in the film world. I think it's really great that people are out there thinking more creatively about what storytelling can mean in this new kind of medium. And like, I totally understand your concern about <laughs> living with a character uh, in, in your space. And like, uh, I'm sure there are ways to think about it in which it wouldn't sound very appealing. But what, uh, what, what I find attractive about it is that it's not literally that you have a character in your space all the time or something of that nature. Characters are they're not restricted to the movies anyway, you know, like characters live out of that frame. Like when you build a good character in a film or a story, you develop a relationship with that character and you develop ideas about what this character does outside of what you've learned about just uh, in this particular story. So then those characters live outside of it. You follow them on social media and you see memes about them and you watch other YouTube videos of the characters who by action figures and toys and like it's just this like ever expanding kind of um world that comes out of just experiencing a character for a given amount of time but that's the fascinating part that it's actually like that time is actually not even the most crucial i've never for example i've never seen a minion film a, a film which has like minions in them i don't even know if it's called the minion film <laughs> they are called minions yeah yeah but but i'm aware like of bananas. minions like i i see them all around the world all the time unfortunately so like it's kind of this a similar form of presence that i think that uh, fable is trying to think of and i think that in general that idea is absolutely worth exploring because it makes you think of what else is possible with the medium and it's your starting point doesn't become a format that worked for flat video. Sure. And I, I think that's an uh, excellent point in terms of the, the characters coming out of film and, in, and, and infiltrating the real world. I think that's uh, ever apparent with like the hours of conversations people have about star Wars and about Harry Potter and about, you know, the, the whole role playing and, um, cosplaying aspect of things. Like you can see how, 
yeah, those those characters are definitely they take up real space in our worlds. Um, to kind of tie things up, and 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 you touched on this a little bit in terms of the film festivals. So you you probably have more knowledge on this subject than than most people, and I'm curious as to like what is currently being accepted in, into these film festivals. What's being regarded as like uh, a good film in that sense? Um, yeah, can you kind of give us an overview of of what you're seeing and and uh, what how people can start thinking and uh, of if they want to make a film right and and want to uh, submit it to a festival should they do a 360 film and or or what are you seeing that's actually uh being accepted in i think um it's a very dynamic and interesting space right now film festivals for whatever reason sundance and tribeca and venice and south by southwest um have become kind of these places where a lot of this stuff is premiered or where this stuff is even aimed at and that that's just interesting to me and i did not know about this like you know a year ago but now that i've kind of been immersed in the world and i've met a lot of the people making this content putting out content have been to sundance this year we'll have a project in tribeca it's starting to yeah uh, i am starting to see like how new and dynamic this world is because you start to see rules and ideas around format develop, which is very interesting, fascinating to see that kind of unfold in front of your own eyes. And then there's a lot of really experimental kind of weird stuff that most of the time is actually that good in terms of content. Um, so for example, at Sundance this year, there were a bunch of 360 stuff that I never even tried because I just thought, oh, well, it's going to come out eventually and I'll try it on some other thing if I have limited time. So 360 is really where you have most distribution from the looks of it. Apps like Within and even being able to post it on Facebook or something reaches the most amount of people. So if you're making an immersion and your aim is to reach as many people as possible, that's probably a good starting point. But then automatically, that's also the place where you have the most competition. So you'll have the hardest time getting into film festivals with a 360 video because right now there are 360 videos that are really 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 like high production value uh, that have really high production value could like you could you recommend any? any so for example riot riot studios uh, has been doing a lot of 360 films that's mainly what they do but recently they had a film at sundance called dinner party they're also one of our executive producers um dinner party is i think at south by southwest right now it's going to tribeca as well but it's a good example of a relatively like high production value project in 360 video it's a lot of it is like rendered out of unity and um but they still like prefer to publish it as a 360 film so i think checking out some of that is definitely interesting um of course the classics have been the whole chris milk like empathy machine idea from the last few years um where people have just been doing a lot of 360 videos in other parts of the world trying to you know make you empathize with what's happening in those parts which i think is a very interesting debate and very interesting idea um there's certainly something to be said about how virtual reality enables you to be able to experience how things are in other parts of the world but at the same time it comes with a weird like almost weird idea of feeling like now you know <laughs> now you know how it's done because you were in like a flat 360 in a 360 video for five minutes um but yeah, so going back to like the immersive uh, festival stuff, 
So 360 videos is definitely like how you get the most distribution, but definitely the most competition as well. Then there is the kind of real-time unity uh, virtual reality stuff where they're starting to, we're starting to have some good stuff there. For example, Battles cards, Spears, and um, Wolves in the Wall at Sundance. I was like impressed by all three of them and thought that they were trying to think of content first once again, and you kind of forget that you're in VR. It doesn't matter soon enough. And what was really interesting is with all three of these, although all three of them are done by different artists and different like production companies, well, Spheres and uh, sorry, Spheres and Battlescar is done mainly by the same, but like they have a similar format. They're roughly like ten to twelve minutes of content at a time, real time rendered. You use the controllers, and there's some basic engagement that you have with the story, and you have some presence in the space because you're interacting with the controllers. And the they they have a credit sequence at the end, and they have kind of a billing block at the start with the logos of the sponsors and. You know, these are things that stand out to me right now because the space is so new that to see these things formatted in the same way in multiple experiences starts to say something. So, like, I think that's a very interesting part now that's starting to happen. I think one of the big things I would encourage everyone making content is to check out this stuff, like to uh, reach out to creators and get builds if they can and see where the world is overall. That's the problem, right? A lot with these film film festivals is that there's so much amazing content that we hear about, yet so little of it is actually available to the public at any point. So it's all in a sense, it always feels like it's a film made for the film festival that never sees the light of day. Um, but yeah, no, th- those are great recommendations. I, I'm pulling up links, and we're gonna have uh, some of the films that you were talked about in the show links that people can access to. Um, so it's good to hear that you know, being a creative in the space, you're in, you are seeing things that are inspiring you that are encouraging you and also setting precedence in a way that you were talking about, you know, how, what does a title sequence and a credit sequence look like? And you're starting to see some parody, um, between projects, um, to, to kind of tie, t- tie things up. Is there something left unsaid that you would like to, uh, inform everyone's everyone about um we'll give you a moment at the end to kind of plug in your uh how people can find you and reach you and talk to you but uh is there anything perhaps on the philosophical side of things that uh you would you want your our audience to listen to and and perhaps look up okay if i could recommend one thing i would say everyone listening go pull up this story from borges the a short story author and the, there is a story um called on exactitude in science i believe that's the exact title it's a very small like small story it's structured as if it's a quote from somewhere else uh kind of yeah it's just like a random uh, not even completed quote and it's just describing a civilization where cartography the art of making maps got so advanced that they had a massive map the map became so big that it was the size of the state. So it was exactly the size of the state. And and what he says later in the story is that eventually the passing generations came and this top caring about maps that much. So the map was torn apart and you can find remains of it in the desert or something. And that's where the story ends. But the great idea that it points towards is that it very well could have been that the map itself become, became so advanced and realistic that it was the state that was destroyed and left behind. Everyone just lived on the map. 
And I think like virtual reality has this kind of map territory um, idea in it built into just the idea of it. Like you go to Google Maps on your Oculus Rift, like you start to see that, wow, this is pretty realistic. Like in what's going to happen in a decade or two, this is probably going to be as realistic as real life. Like will I confuse this with real life? Will I start living here eventually? And these are all very real questions. And I just want people in the space who are, viewing content and making content to think of this as more than just a gaming platform because we are at this point making realities like we're literally making the worlds that we are going to be living in in the future and i think that is a lot of people would say that's a great like challenge or threat i i try to make it very clear this is a great opportunity the world we live in has very very like clear obvious structural problems that have existed for hundreds of years and we're trying to solve them now but at the same time the world is based on how things have been and that's how it's the change can only be gradual but i do think it's possible to make virtual worlds that from the ground up are equitable and um you know look at diverse voices and give voices to people who've not had them in real life before and i think like if people take this a medium as seriously as this as a medium to literally make the realities of the future or to literally be able to go into a game engine and make the life you want to live um they'll just take it a bit more seriously and i want people to take it more seriously absolutely um how can people find you asad yeah you can find me on twitter and instagram my username is asad j malik on facebook the best way is to follow the one rick page one ric you can probably find links to all of this on onerc.com, which is the studio is creating all this work. Yeah, and I think if you follow me there, you'll be able to see what we're doing going forward with Terminal 3, how the Tribeca premiere goes, and then hopefully also what ways of distribution we come up with to make sure that this reaches as many people as possible. Awesome. And you can find us at ResearchVRCast on Twitter and at ResearchVRPodcast on Facebook. We are now also posting clips of the podcast on YouTube as well, um, kind of based on topics. So you can find us at Research VR Podcast on YouTube. Um, we have Discord. Oh, that's right. Uh, we do have a active Discord channel that uh, we very active have a co- conversations pre and post episodes uh, about the things that we're talking about. And uh, so find us yeah. there if you Asad, want. To. You're invited to join the Discord channel if you have some moments left that's right and you know you can then chat with the audience about you know and debate the simulacra versus (laughs) all right thanks everyone for listening in and see you next time goodbye